This is the Chiron podcast number one for the third quarter of 2020. This is Ryan Caldwell. I am the uh, CIO at Chiron Investments. And today I am joined by a few colleagues. And we are going to relaunch the Chiron podcast. It's been a little bit. Um, for those of you that are not aware, we were, we being Chiron, were acquired by FS Investments in Philadelphia. Um, we have been diligently working through our integration process and obviously focusing on markets and strategies. And we, we thought that this would be an opportune time to re-kick off the podcast in a very fresh way. And so I'm excited today to be joined by a couple of new guests on the podcasts. Today we have Laura Rame, the Chief Economist at FS Investments, as well as Peter Bianco, who is the Head of Trading at Chiron. So Laura, Peter, uh, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thank you. We are also joined today by a couple of people our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with. Brian Cho, who runs our quantitative group, and Scott Sullivan, who helps me with the uh, fundamental implementation of the fund. So, Brian, Scott, welcome back. Good to be here. Good to be back. <laughs> so, so, I thought what I would do is maybe do a little bit of explaining, given the intro. So, for some of our listeners and readers who are familiar with us, we generally do music as an intro. Every now and then we do movie clips. And what I wanted to do was maybe frame this one a little bit and give a little bit of the backstory. And so um, for our third quarter 3D report, and you'll and our readers and listeners uh, will be getting this here momentarily, um, opened up that, uh, that piece with uh, a, a clip and some dialogue from the movie Spinal Tap. And so for some of you younger listeners who maybe weren't around for mid-80s mockumentaries, um, Spinal Tap is, uh, is, a, is a classic, actually it was Rob Reiner's first film, um, is a classic sort of spoof on 80s rock bands. And as the intro sort of alluded to, um, there's this really hysterical exchange between the band and Rob Reiner over this concept of their amplifiers going to 11 versus most amplifiers that go to 10. And so to kind of pull this all together, um, Laura, our chief economist, and I, as well as Mike Kelly, who's the CIO at FS Investments, we were having a dialogue post the uh, last major Fed meeting, I guess you would say, where Chairman Powell reintroduced or introduced the findings of the uh, Fed review of their framework. Um, which started an email chain that had a lot of banter in it, which ended up with this with this uh, reference to uh, Spinal Tap and the uh, and the ability of the amps to go to eleven. So I thought it was more than appropriate to uh, to maybe kick off because again, as some of our listeners um, may remember or have read from us, one of the things that we've been spending a lot of time talking about is the effect of policy, but maybe more importantly, interest rates on all things portfolio construction. And so, um, you know, again, we, we've gone over this a little bit, but again, I, we haven't really talked since sort of the, you know, the COVID collapse, I guess you would, and the term structure of interest rates, which again is sort of, I would argue, supercharged everything that had gone on before. So like, these trends were in place 
and then the kind of collapse in the risk-free rate globally, but I think the U.S. being the most important place, um, really kind of put a supercharger to this in everybody's portfolio. And so, you know, here we are um, in October ahead of an election. You know, we've had this kind of reintroduction of a framework from the Federal Reserve. Um, and again, it's all kind of centered around the same thing. And I want to get into that a little bit because we do think that, look, the really big thing is rates and inflation. And given where portfolios are lined up, any outcome that maybe is outside of the market's you know, current probability table is going to have a really dramatic effect on your portfolio and how you implement portfolios. So that's where I wanted to spend most of our time today. And so, Laura, Pete, I want to kick off with you two because I want to remove this from maybe the the kind of portfolio manager lens. And I want to zoom back up maybe to, you know, 30,000 feet. And I, I was wondering, Laura, if you could give us a little bit of framework and staging of kind of this whole notion of why the Fed needed to review their framework, what they concluded, and maybe what they thought it, what they think it means, and then you know maybe some narrative from you on maybe what you think it means, and then Pete, I'm going to flip over to you to kind of the trader market view of kind of what the market thinks it heard. But I wanted to start with you, Laura, to maybe set the table because, quite honestly, you're only the really only one credible to do that here. So why don't we kick off with you, Laura, on a little bit about like how we got here and what is this? Yeah, uh, thank you. Thanks very much. Um, and you know, it, it's actually you know a, a typical. Leave it to a government agency to make something really simple so complicated, right? The simple problem that the Fed has is that. They've been trying to target inflation at 2%. And that target was, it was hard to hit in the 80s, right? They created this because we had bad inflation. They fought several waves of higher inflation in the 90s, a little bit in the 2000s, considered them, got a little overconfident, thinking that they had this inflation uh, dynamic, well understood, pinned down and controlled. And then they were completely surprised by the last 10 years when actually inflation has undershot their target. Uh, inflation averaged one and a half percent over the past 10 years. And that has had several uh, waves of impact throughout the market. One of them has been continued falling rates across the yield curve. The other one has been this slow grinding down of inflation expectations. So, you know, you look at the five-year OIS numbers, they have tracked around 1.7 this entire time. So, you know, long, long-term markets not only don't think the Fed is going to make their 2% target, they, you know, this has really big implications for Fed credibility. You know, a very real world example that we all see is the rate hike cycle that started in 2015 and really gained traction, some gain momentum in 2017, ended in 2018 with a strong about face. You know, under the new framework where we're now averaging inflation, and that's, you know, I think we can very clearly draw that back to your spinal tap reference because the, the reality hasn't changed, right? The Fed, you know, you call the top of the amplifier 10, you call it 11. The reality is the sound is at seven, right? You know, that that's the problem and they can't turn the dial. 
So that's really where that analogy hits home. Um, and, you know, right now, uh, long-term expectations are not only that interest rates are going to stay low, but that the Fed's credibility on waging this war against inflation is actually eroded to the downside where their tools are quickly losing effectiveness. And so, Laura, I, I think one of the things that that maybe surprised me was this whole notion of like, look, and again, I'm I'm not not qualified to play economist, but I'll pretend for a minute, which was this notion that one uber low unemployment was going to drive inflation. Like that was this sort of the given truth, if you will, is that there was some, you know, under Nehru, there was some level of unemployment where wages took a bigger chunk of revenue and all of a sudden you had an inflationary backdrop that failed or at least didn't work. And then there's this other kind of overriding notion that we've heard from kind of Fed policymakers or at least Fed watchers over time that inflation is this monetary phenomenon, right? It's completely driven by, you know, by monetary inputs. And like clearly, as you just pointed out, the last 20 years have told you that's not exactly right. So I guess when you think about like, when you kind of think about this, this shining moment of revelation where they decide, well, wait, you know, we couldn't, you know, we didn't achieve our inflation target. We've achieved our employment targets, but we couldn't achieve our inflation targets. And it, it, it what, what do you think it was that, was it the, just the fact that they hadn't achieved the target that they said, well, clearly all the things that we thought in the past are not relevant. And the only reason I'm asking is because I think to your, the kind of point you just made, which is the answer at seven the market doesn't think they can go to 11, but the Fed is still behaving like they can turn the amps to 11. So like, it, what's the dissonance between the fact that they now realize they couldn't generate inflation, even though you know they've tried, I guess, recently? I think what you've hit on is the problem that markets are struggling with. Policymakers are absolutely struggling with it. Uh, but of course, they can't say that. Um, and I think anybody who claims to have the true insight um, is is mistaken, because the reality is there's still pieces of this that we don't quite understand. You know, I'm a macroeconomist, so I'm looking at these, you know, these these tectonic plates of demographic developed economies which, um, you know, are slowly shrinking um, in growth and in productivity, in inflation, um, in wage growth, the emerging markets, which are uh, still really, I think, going to be the population growth um, and investment source for the future. But that dynamic is really going to play out over the course of decades. And so for thinking about it today, uh, I think the Fed, to exactly to your point, you know, had been so laser focused on the wage Phillips curve dynamic. And, you know, they have had to acquiesce that maybe it's not disappeared entirely, but it is absolutely AWOL. Um, and it doesn't, for our purposes, it doesn't even matter, right? It, it, because for the last 10 years, they have really had to acknowledge that that dynamic is broken. Um, the dynamic that they were heavily leaning on was inflation expectations. That is really what they had leaned into. 
And the markets have now taken that away from them. So that is where the yield curve comes in, right? That is where the yield, that's where the rubber meets the road. What are long-term yields? Their risk, inflation expectations, credit risk, um, and you pull it apart. And when you take out that inflation expectation dynamic, you're left with this blunt signal that you have very little room to maneuver when you, when you think about, um, you know, how we're going to be able to start the machine again. And that I think is, um, is where markets have landed. And that's where I think they risk getting too complacent. No, that's really well said. And actually, Pete, that's a perfect lead in. Cause again, you know, where I wanted to go, where I wanted to go with you. And just again, for our listeners, a little bit of background on Pete, um, you know, Pete used to uh, to run uh, macro trading for a very large, prominent macro fund, and so again, you know, his job was to sort of, you know, deal with all of these kind of um, the execution of all these outputs, right? So, r- learning to kind of read this stuff, and then being able to kind of implement a portfolio around it in a macro way. So, so Pete, kind of taking that lead, like, so. Again, we have this big framework review, as Laura as Laura said. Like the kimono opened, the argument was, well, there's some deficiencies here, but you know we're gonna, you know, we recognize those deficiencies as maybe the best we got for now. Um, and 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 to Laura's point, like there's some pretty you know easy indicators that kind of tell you what the market's thinking. But Pete, like, what was the market digestion of like this big, you know, this big announcement and this big, you know moment if you will yeah so this is <clears throat> this framework review has been in the works for the better part of a year and uh you know this was uh championed by uh the vice chair so um you know people in the interest rate world were very focused on you know really the texture of like what was going to happen and what the review was but when we when we did get the you know the sort of the initial blush over at jackson hole um and the subsequent fed meeting um, we didn't get an, an idea of like, well, what's the look back period? If you have this fate framework, what's the look back period on PCE? So how far back are you going to look to achieve that 2%? Um, how is the Fed going to get us there? And like what tools and instruments are they going to use? And on top of that, if you do reach that 2% demarcation line, how far above 2% is the Fed willing to tolerate? Um, and then lastly, you know, more on the macro economist side, if you think about Nehru and the Phillips curve, are they gone forever? They essentially um, left that out of, you know, the, the language um, when, uh, when Powell spoke at, at the last meeting. So um, we didn't really get any answers. You know, Clarida sort of made a comment that this is, this is to be looked to as more of a quasi-constitutional document where it's just like a 30,000-foot view. And I think the market is left scratching to their heads. And to Laura's point, um, they have had very little credibility in the market um, to where they have priced interest rates because the euro dollar curve has led the led the Fed, uh, and they have had very little credibility on uh, inflation and inflation expectations. So um, I think we're sort of left, you know, grasping for straws, um, and we're probably going to get something uh, regarding implementation. Uh, after the election, that's that's sort of the expectation with some sort of twist program out the curve. But yeah, I think uh, roughly the market was was pretty disappointed. 
Yeah, and 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 Laura, I'm going to steal your analogy or maybe have you retell it. I I remember we were going back and forth. Um, we were going back and forth about this, and just maybe just simplify this for our listeners. And y- you know, I asked you like, and I asked Pete the same thing. I'm like, uh, okay, well, what does this mean? And you gave me this analogy that I thought was awesome, which is like, well, it's like going and telling your friends you're going to lose five pounds. And five years later, you haven't lost five pounds. And then you come back and tell them, hey, I'm going to lose 10 pounds. And they kind of look at you and go, well, you never lost the five. So why are you credible on the 10? So like, yeah, and I thought it was like a perfectly set analogy for like what happened. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, just to, to layer on what Pete said, I mean, you know, I, I, my husband like is an insurance sales guy, you know, so I always use him as my metric for talking for how the Fed communicates with the world. Right. Cause I think traders, you know, all, all of us who watch the Fed really closely. Yes. We're, you know, we're spent, we spent a lot of time really trying to pick apart the nitty gritty, but as a general rule, you know, when they lower interest rates, you know, everyone understands that. My husband's like, hey, honey, let's refinance the mortgage. You know, the rates are going down. But when you talk about changes to framework and forward guidance, you know, no, nobody understands that. You know, I get asked if I picked up the dry cleaning. So I think, you know, that's where markets have been, you know, not to mention the fact that when they started this framework review, the context was under what conditions do we raise rates? And now, we're faced with an enormous new set of challenges. The Fed has thrown, um, you know, a wider, ever widening array of tools at this to varying degrees of success. It really kind of makes them look like they're fighting the last war. And um, no one's talking about interest rate hikes. It took them seven years after the last recession to raise rates again. Um, you know, as we look at Fed policy and, you know, the leadership of of Powell, the now very disparate Fed speak that we're getting from all of the regional Fed presidents, you know, the and you look I, I look at long term interest rates, boy, they have been locked in a tight range. And I don't I think that that is the real, um, you know, future source of volatility when we're talking about. 2021, you know, what is the other black swan event that's possible? I think everyone looks at equity markets. They worry about volatility there. I think markets really have no idea what policymakers are thinking about long-term interest rates. Policymakers don't even know what they're thinking about it. And that is really right for, um, I think, for for a nasty surprise. Dear Lord, that's a loaded statement that we're going to get into. (laughs) And I completely, (laughs) look, I completely agree. I think before we get there, though, this is one of the questions I wanted to throw to maybe the two of you and listen to you banter about it a second. So if if we kind of agree that, like, okay, everybody agrees that they didn't hit the inflation target, they're not necessarily all that credible on inflation. So what changes the dynamic, right? So they, they've now admitted that they're underperforming. They've given these metrics that you you both have kind of pointed to are hard to quantify, when you look at like a couple of the dynamics, and I'm thinking about this again from kind of the, you know, PM hat on chair, which is we've got an election coming up. There could be a change in administration. The Fed could change. The thought process of the Fed can change because I still kind of see, and you guys will go smack me if I get this too outrageously wrong, that the Powell Fed is like, you know, the telltale end of the Greenspan Fed. 
Like if you look at the lineage of kind of Greenspan to Bernanke to Yellen to Powell, it was, again, kind of the same framework, right? That we had whipped inflation. We were working off Phillips curve and Nehru. And like, so now they're admitting maybe it's something else. Right at this time when we could have an administration change. Don't know. We'll see that in a few weeks. Um, but everybody's questioning their credibility. And so, like, guys, how do you think about the, like, again, as a place that, you know, is important, and I would say this, and we're going to talk about fiscal as well, because that's clearly really important. But my Lord, outside of, you know, some of the things Congress can do, I can't think of a more important institution for what's going to happen to your portfolio in the next decade than what goes on right now um, at the Fed. And then, you know, obviously other global central banks have tended to follow. So like now what, like, like where are we going with this thing, given this framework change, maybe we get an administration change. I just wanted you guys to maybe opine for a minute and again, Laura, happy to start with you on like, what should we be thinking about given this, I guess, prescient moment for the Fed? So the Fed clearly has a bias towards action. And, you know, I think we can have a very healthy debate over whether or not that's even correct. Um, by that, I mean, you know, the, in, in my opinion, the Fed takes too much credit for the economy. Um, and they take, they're now starting to increasingly take action and push into markets. So there's clearly a bias to action there. Um, there's, there's been such significant mission creep uh, if you look at the arc over the last 20 years. So, you know, I, I think to the extent that there's been continuity from Volcker to Greenspan and all the way across these, um, you know, at times extremely charismatic Fed leaders, which in my humble opinion, we do not have one right now, um, you know, he's a, a lovely person. I've, I've met Mr. Powell, but um, but I think when we think about the grand arc of Fed policy, we've just seen, you know, more and more and more attempts to intervene in markets and the economy. So, um, you know, does that solve the core problem of um, of getting in, of of reinvigorating inflation? That's the problem that's probably harder for them to solve. But clearly these tools, the market intervention, the, um, the zero interest rates, all of these things uh, are here to stay for some time. And that's the dynamic that we're all going to have to try to navigate. They definitely have a bias for that type of intervention. And that has only grown. Mission creep is gentle, by the way. But <laughs> I agree. Sorry, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, no, I think that's well said. Um, you know, if w what's interesting is um, as a market participant, it's really tough to be inspired by the current Fed chair, and there is there definitely will be uh, changes in the seats. You know, post the election, the hope is that um, you know we've had this massive. The care package was what two point two trillion, so it's massive. The uptake has been a fraction of that. So the the hope is um, maybe we get folks you know in the treasury in congress and in the fed that can somehow get that money out to the real economy to start doing some work and not at pork projects and everything else but you know as a market participant i'm really focused on okay who's going to take the helm um 
it's been interesting to see over the last couple of weeks and months, it feels like a lot of people are on job interviews that they're just they're gunning for the chair and it's it's been incredible. We've seen Hawks flip the dubs and doves flip the Hawks and it's been it's been really shocking to to watch. Um so I, I think once we get some, you know, once we get some continuity in Washington and we get that, you know, the stimulus package, the CARES package that's been allotted, that starts getting used up. That's gonna be massive. Um, you know, there's been so much focus on the Supreme Court you know, and that the, 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 the chairs that are rotating there, you know, I look at the Fed, you've got two current vacancies, Clarita's term as a governor expires, you know, you've got Quarles sitting there, he is low hanging fruit right. for, you know, the, uh, you know, it, should there be a Biden administration to come in and sort of headhunt a rich Wall Street guy to take him out of that uh, regulatory position, and Powell, who, you know, normal in a normal administration, normally the president sort of accepts the nominee of the prior, the, the Fed chair of the prior administration. But Trump was very clear and took out Yellen. So, you know, I think that really remains to be seen if if uh, if Powell sticks around, I, the Fed could be up for a massive change and rotation um, in cast of characters. No, I, I, that's exactly where I was going, Laura. I think that's such a critical point to make, which is, to your point, is for all the discussion about the Supreme Court, like there's going to be a mass, depending on how this goes, there could be a massive turnover at that institution, again, with a mandate that that may look different than what we're used to. And I think, you know, as both you and Pete have alluded to, to with Mission Creep and Pete's point about the CARES Act, um, Treasury and Fed are almost rolled into one apparatus all right. of a sudden, or at least behaving that way. And so again, I want to I, I, I want to come back to that point a little later when we kind of talk about you know when we kind of talk about portfolio implementation. But I, I think those are all really big things to kind of to kind of raise as we kind of head to the next part of this discussion, which is you know where I wanted to go from here is to say okay, like if I rewind and give the quick summary. You know, Lauren Pete just gave you the framework we've all been operating under for 30 years clearly didn't work, right? We now have admission that that framework didn't work. There is some, you know, acknowledgement that there'll be something new and different going forward, although there's no specifics as to what that is. And to Laura's point, the market doesn't believe it at all, and Pete's point, and it's priced that way. So, so the important thing, the important conclusion I draw out of that having to run a portfolio is... And, and Brian and Scott, this is where I, I need you guys to kind of hop in and I want to talk about this. But first, I want to start with Brian, which is this notion that given that backdrop, and again, and so what you've got to understand is like, what's the really big thing? And like the really big thing is what we just talked about. You've collapsed the risk-free rate, right? And this has been ongoing for 30 years, but you had an accelerator that hit really what I would call kind of the Powell pivot in 18 and then the COVID, you know, drop out of bed. Like you can really see these trends accelerate since 2018. And what I would say is that if you're running a portfolio, and again, it doesn't matter if it's rates, credit, equities, you are, if you're still around, you are, have had to become really long duration, right? So to get back to Laura's point, right, when the term premium collapses, like what the market's response to that to do is go get longer duration, right? 
And so we talk about that a lot in credit and rates, and people will talk about the duration of their credit book or their rates book. But where that concept becomes a bit more esoteric for them is in equities. But there is no question that the same thing has gone on in equities. And again, I think there's a lot of kind of you know quaint notions that get thrown around on equities when I look back and say, well, the only thing that's really mattered is understanding that the term premium was going to collapse. Like when you think about getting longer duration equities, what the market has done has moved away from all things cheap or what we would call high free cash flow yielding. So, you know, assets that are cheap but are generating high current free cash flow, what the market has said is, eh, the nominals are so bad that in the future that cash flow is going to be less. Therefore, the value currently has to be so discounted to attract investment dollars that it's become extreme. And again, I'm going to have Brian talk about what it, what I mean when I say extreme. And on the other hand, what the market has said is, if you have the characteristic of generating future cash flows or even the prospect of future cash flows, then that cash flow stream is incredibly valuable. So again, another way to think about this is, and again, there's tons of discussion about FANG, and I'll use FANG because it's easy, but it's not the only thing, and quite honestly, it's not even the most egregious thing we see in the equity market when it comes to long-duration investing. But when you look at something like uh, the characteristics of FANG, what we would say is, well, think about FANG this way. So for all the discussion about PE ratios, and what you've got to keep in mind when you talk PE ratios is you are discounting the risk-free rate, right? So it went to zero. So your PE relative to to history is going to look different because your comparator of the risk-free rate is now zero. And I think that concept, again, we understand it easier in fixed income because we look at total yields and say, well, here's where the total yield is. But then we look at PEs and say, oh, Lord, those are expensive. Well, they're the same thing. They're just the different side of the same coin. And so the risk-free rate goes to zero. And what happens is you have companies like like the, the FANG group, because specifically it doesn't matter, they all have generally the same characteristics. They are growing revenue somewhere between mid-teens and 20. They have free cash flow margins that are in the top decile of our free cash flow margin universe. So to get into that top decile, you've got to almost have a 24% free cash flow margin. So I want to put those two metrics together for you and say, if I gave you an asset that had 15 to 20% top line growth, that had a cash flow margin of 24%, so again, you're compounding cash flows at you know, high, you know, high teens to, to, to low 20s in a zero rate environment, what would you pay for that, right? And what the market has said is, well, I'm going to pay a whole lot for that. And so there's, we've seen these comparators between, you know, things like technology today to 1999, right? And the, it's a bad compare. And the reason it's a bad compare is because what we are seeing in things like tech and healthcare and some of these sectors is the free cash flow margins are just so much higher relative to what we've ever seen historically. 
And again, you can say that's because they're monopolies. They've been misregulated. We do a lot of work in the piece to show you where those margins came from. A lot of those margins came from, again, from outsourcing. Again, a lot of those margins came from tax rate optimization by trapping revenue outside the U.S. And then ultimately, these are just capital light businesses relative to typical CapEx. They, ha they happen to have a whole lot of R&D. And so the market's coming at this and saying, well, wait a minute, looking at old traditional book value may not be the right valuation metric because this R&D is turning out to be so profitable. Look at how long these companies have been compounding. So again, when I take what Laura and Pete discussed and said, you've had a complete kind of collapse in the credibility of the Fed to be able to generate inflation, the term premium goes to zero right at a time where these companies with really high margins and really good growth rates, and again, they've continued through the kind of through the pandemic, they've been, you know, accelerating, you know, all, you know, all along, you know, since and really in a material way since 2018. And you can see why the market is doing what it's doing. So we get these you know, comments from advisors at the time, well, the market's so irrationally priced. It's not irrationally priced at all. There's a really massive barbell between the things that can grow with high margins and cash flow and the things that can't grow with high current free cash flow and low book to price, right? It's a completely opposite thing and they're not valued the same. So again, the market looks at the average multiple and says, or you know, people will look at that and say, oh, it's expensive. But really what you got is the median tells you nothing. All the intelligence is in the two tails. It's in the right tail and the left tail. So Brian, this is, what I, this is kind of what I wanted you to talk about quantitatively. Because again, I think the reason I'm harping on this so dramatically is the fight that we continue to hear in the market is, between the value and growth guys and advisors, like, is it time to rotate to value? Growth is so extreme. Everybody's there. Like, what's it going to take? And I wanted you to just talk a little bit about the work you did, because this was salient to our own strategies and implementations. And again, trying to pull all this together, which was to kind of test all the things that you look at across interest rate environments and maybe give kind of the listeners a peek under the hood as to kind of the results that you found, because I want to, I really want to highlight those results with what Pete and Laura are talking about because they are linked at the hip. So Brian, maybe could you talk a little bit about like what you found testing all this stuff in different interest rates and interest rate environments? Yeah. Um, Thank you for all that conclusion already. So all, all I <laughs> have welcome. to do is point out, <laughs> all I got to do is point out a few numbers. So here, it, here they are. So first thing first, what I want to point out is, you know, when you think about, you know, PEs, whether they're forward PE or trailing PE, they don't work that well. So the fact that companies cheap on PE doesn't necessarily lead to future outperformance by those companies. And by the same token, uh, higher PEs doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to underperform, although there is a tendency for that. Having said that, free cash flow yield that we use are much more potent in terms of value metric. So now let me put some numbers around them uh, since I put that on. So here's what we see. As Ryan pointed out, when you look at free cash flow yield, in developed market relative to U.S. Uh, Treasury yield, 
uh, tenure, that is. And when you look at the uh, what it takes to become top decile, so highest decile, so highest 10%, you need 14.5 percentage points, meaning the free cash flow yield advantage of these companies that's uh, cheap based on our definition of free cash flow yield, there, you know, there's an additional uh, 14.5% on top of free, uh, U.S. Treasury. So they're really super cheap. And then the other thing I want to point out is uh, when you look at that number versus the history, it's only 6.7. So the historical average since the late 80s is only 6.7. So today's number is just shockingly high. And then let me point out yet another number. So, okay, why doesn't expensive companies underperform or do poorly? And so we looked at uh, expensive side, so the bottom decile. So to be in the bottom decile, so bottom 10%, the hurdle rate is minus 3.2. Historically, that number was minus 9.1. So let's uh, let that sink into uh, you for a little bit. So what we're saying is, to be expensive, you have to be losing money at 3%. Whereas in the history, they used to lose uh, 10%. So just think about that for a second. Today, you know, if you think about the low rate environment and you're losing far less money than you used to, that's not a bad place to be. So that's so, so Brian, yeah, I, I want to put a, a, a finer point on that, which is to, uh, to say cheap has never been cheaper and expensive isn't that expensive. Is that like roughly the way you would kind of characterize this, uh, characterize this when looking at free cash flow yield? Yeah, absolutely. So expensive isn't that expensive. Cheap is cheap as ever been. And so, so, Brian, one of the things that I really wanted to call out, and again, this is something that, look, it's plagued us. So I'm fully want to be I'm always fully transparent about this, which is traditionally when you see cycles move. Right. What tends to happen when you have a big breakdown like we did out of covid, we had this massive, you know, again, as Laura said, this just massive divot in GDP, historically big. Right. And even if you go back to kind of the 18 experience around the trade war or the 16 experience around Brexit. And again, we talk about this in the piece, which is historically when the market has a big deflationary, you know, sell off because of an event or a recession, what tends to lead you off the bottom is the stuff that mean reverts the fastest. So kind of the highest levered, cheapest stuff that is, you know, at most risk of going away, right? Like when you kind of think about it simplistically, you know, we might call that high yield and small cap value, right? Like those are the two asset classes. When the world blows up, you want to run into kind of head first because of the old market concept of mean reversion. That's where you get paid. But what we've seen as the, is again, tying this back to the, to the term premium point and, and the fed point is, as we've seen interest rates go to the zero bound, and we first saw this in Japan, right? So like I kicked myself a little bit because the roadmap was built for you, Japan, then Europe, and then it showed up here, which was that hasn't been what's worked. And again, when you come back to 2020, 
to put a, you know to get more specific, it didn't work at all, right? What worked was, to your point, the most expensive stuff with the potential for the highest margins was your leadership, right? When I think about all of our work and I think about quantitative strategies going back to history, all the things that we would call perverse, right, are working, are working perversely, right? The characteristics of expensive, to your point, which, by the way, isn't that expensive, like, you know, it, it burn cash and need to raise capital, those things aren't what's, those things are leading you off the bottom, one way to look at it. Look at the IPO ETF versus energy and financials. This shouldn't happen, right? Again, we've had a massive dividend GDP. Like we're, we drew down 30. We're going to rally 30. To Laura's point, the stimulus is massive fiscally. To Pete's point, monetary, it's huge stimulus. It should have been good for the nominals. You should have rushed into the stuff that was kind of nominally. And again, it, it came off the bottom. So I don't want to like over-exaggerate the point. But the NASDAQ's up 35, right? So, like, when you look at where the leadership was, it wasn't early cycle cyclicals, which is traditionally where you would go to. So, like, I wanted maybe you to maybe talk about that quantitatively since you're our quant guru. And, look, quant funds are choking on this, right? It's happening in a lot of different places because of the notion of value and mean reversion. Like, this is the old Graham, uh, Graham and Dodd notion of investing, which is, you know, again, you buy things at cheap book to price and they mean revert when the world gets better. And that's just not working. And so I wanted you to maybe touch on that too, kind of before I go to Scott. Yeah. So in order to do that, I kind of have to digress a little. So I want to actually bring up your point earlier about the margins. So develop market free cash flow margin to be in the top decile, you need 24.2%. So that number is shockingly high. Right? Here's another tidbit that I want to point out. This number, historical average, is about 18%, but it's gotten higher and higher and higher, even during the COVID. Okay? So the highest SL companies with the uh, stupendous margins have continued to march forward. And then the other thing that I want to point out is most of the companies in the index, 90 percentile roughly, they are you, you know, generating positive cash flows. This never happened before. So we have more companies generating positive cash flow. On top of that, the best of the best, the cream of the crop in terms of free cash flow margins have done even better and better and better. Okay, so keep that in mind for a second. So there was no regression to mean to these cohorts. And the next thing I want to point out is, uh, you know, we did a little bit of research that looks at how equity markets tie to the rates. And in that sense, what I want to point out is not only equities uh, beta to the rates are now higher as a whole market, but the cohorts. So if you look at like, you know, share of companies that have, a uh, much, much higher correlation and share of companies with a much, much lower or negative correlation are much larger. So, so the correlation, let's, let me put some numbers around this. So the companies with correlation higher than 30%. So these guys move with the rates, right? There are now more than 15% of those stock in the U.S. large cap. And same is true with correlation of negative 30, meaning that these companies move 
opposite of rate movement. So now, not only the entire market moves higher and higher or much, much more violent uh, with respect to the rates, but there are pockets of the markets which are even higher. So now what I want to do is I want to talk about, uh, 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 you know, what happened to, uh, first of all, value, and then what happens, you know, uh, uh, to uh, names in the margin. So let me touch on that real quick. So, you know, one of the things that we were shocked to find out is when we did a research, we looked at the beta of cheapest group all the way to the most expensive. And then we looked at different time periods as to how the beta change over time. So we're looking at the highest to the uh, most cheapest to most expensive and their beta over time. And what we found out is that, you know, in the past 1990s to uh, 2000s, what we saw was the cheapest stocks had negative beta to the market. And now it's most positive. Just think about that for a second. So the cheapest stocks are most volatile groups systematically. And not only that, here's another thing that ties to what Ryan said about NASDAQ. So as the world collapsed, thanks to COVID-19, so GDP has shrunk. As that happened, growth stocks accelerated while value just couldn't keep up. In fact, they fell off the cliff, right? And then the other thing that we did is we say, okay, you know, this margin, super normal margin, how does it impact our domain uh, model? And we looked at how uh, stocks with the uh, free cash flow margin uh, uh, behave uh, in different uh, market cycles from going from deep value to full growth. When we did that, what we found is that companies with the highest margin, obviously, does the best in full growth market. But what was even more interesting is the fact that they continue to do okay in a very low rate environment, which is where we are today. So because of the low rate environment, free, highest generating free cash flow margin companies continue to do okay and continue to be rewarded by the market. No, I, I, that's absolutely, it, it's absolutely um, where I wanted you to land because it's going to take me right to Scott. And so, when, Scott, when I think about, when I think about what Brian just said, right? So here we are, we're in this, we're in this environment where, you know, as, as rates collapse, growth outperforms, value not only underperforms, but it becomes more volatile. So the sharp of value falls apart. Right. While the sharp of growth is getting better, you're not mean reverting, which is runs contra to the last, you know, kind of 50 ish, 60 plus years of, of what's gone on from an investing from an investment perspective. But you kind of, you know, again, you can't just own tech. Right. Or just own healthcare. And so I want, where I wanted to go with you is like, what are the other things that you can do Right, given the the setup that we just gave you, which isn't particularly great for everything else, which is the nominals are no good, the Fed has no credibility, value is continued to be to underperform with higher beta, and growth is continued to outperform with worse worse characteristics. 
But there, there have been some things in pockets and places when we think about kind of strategy construction where you could put things around your kind of core holdings, which have to be effectively long duration, right? Given, given what's gone on. So I wanted you to maybe touch about, to touch on, you know, on what else you've seen and particularly in 2020, right? Because again, you just like accelerated all these trends. So when you think about kind of, you know, fundamental implementation in anything that's not kind of FANG plus maybe the IPO ETF, um, like what are you doing and, and how are you navigating kind of the, the landscape we just laid out and like what tips or, you know, thoughts would you leave to listeners as they think about maybe their own portfolio construction as to like, what do you do? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. And as I was kind of looking through our book last night um, in terms of what we've done sort of over the last, let's say, six months, I mean, the real conclusion I came to was that, you know, we bought cyclically depressed end markets that have a secular driver. Um, and I'm not sure that I would have put that sentence together three months ago. I'm not sure we totally did it on purpose. But at the end of the day, you know, as I look through basically all our cyclical names, that's that's kind of what they are. Um, so let me let's just walk through a few examples, I guess. Um, I mean, and, and also set the stage too, because you know when you look back at you know 2018 or so, that that was kind of when we as a team were starting to discuss value. And I, and I remember one of my big pushbacks at that particular point was that you know, the numbers haven't come down at all. Um, and I think at that particular point, you know, just to throw a name off the top of my head, I think Caterpillar's earnings had gone from $6 in 2014 to $12 in 2018. So to me, in 2018, while Caterpillar maybe screened a little bit cheap, you know, we had just seen the earnings double and actually doubled a couple of years before that, as a matter of fact, as well. So we weren't quite as point in the cycle where you felt like you wanted to buy cyclicals because they were cheap. All right, flash forward to today. Obviously, we had trade war, and now we've had the pandemic. So you've had quite a few numbers get reset. And I think it's sort of been our job to figure out, you know, in which one of those end markets that have been reset do we feel like have multi-years of growth? This is Ryan and Brian have pointed out, you know, just buying something because it's cheap, it, it just it hasn't worked. It's not really our style, and um, you know, probably won't work that great going forward. Now, so just to kind of flash forward to like sort of what we have done. So, cyclically depressed end markets with a secular driver. I'm thinking about them in this way: um, automation and electrification. Um, you know, we played that a little bit early and we played that in Europe. Um, and the reason we played that in Europe is because Europe was, you know, sort of a lot further. They didn't have the same sort of cyclical uptake that the U.S. did um, between 2014 and 2018. And just as an example, like Siemens earnings were flat from 14 to 18. As I just mentioned, that was, you know, double. So, you know, given that all these and markets are pretty cyclical, <clears throat> you know, it's usually the better idea to go with a guy that hasn't just doubled the earnings, you know, providing they don't have a, some sort of technological or end market advantage. So 
automation and electrification is one sort of area where we focus. Trucking was another area where we focus. So kind of even before the pandemic, um, the trucking market, particularly in the U.S., the orders had already started to decline, you know, kind of over 40%. So what the pandemic did was sort of elongate that cycle. The earnings get very, very depressed. Um, and it gives you an opportunity into an end market that obviously has some secular drivers around environmental and around economic, right? I mean, all those packages you order from Amazon have got to be delivered by someone. Someone's got to make that truck. Um, and, and those truck orders were down 70%. <clears throat> and then I think the other one that, you know, this is going to be a shout out to Ryan, but the other one that we did a great job on was, was kind of the casinos and the gaming names. So, you know, those got destroyed as traffic went down a ton. Um, but there was also sort of a new secular piece to that one, which was this idea that you're going to have sports wagering and I mean, um, it's a whole new piece to sort of the multiple for those stocks. Um, and then the last kind of way I would say we tried to play it was just to try and get in front of some stimulus. So we did that in China. We did that with a lot of the Chinese construction names. And we've done that, you know, with the airlines. And just to put a little color around the airlines, the way that we've sort of thought about that group was we wanted companies with very good balance sheets. Um, and we wanted companies with sort of local flight plans, so not a ton of international. Um, and, and we wanted a lot of leisure travel. Um, so you can imagine what names those were, but they've been amongst the best performing airlines. And I think the, the next question is going to be, you know, how, how does this recovery go? Um, so we, we kind of keep moving along. Do we get some international travel, things like that? Would that cause a change in, in sort of what you've got? Um, and then finally, I'd, I'd just say there were, there were some, and more recently, I'd say, some more reopened sort of retailing kind of um, And they would be things that, you know, as people start to reapply makeup and uh, perfume and um, we bought kind of a, a discount um, retailer because we believe that, you know, there will probably be some trade down um, and also believe that they're going to have a ton of inventory from some other people that won't know what to do with it. Um, so that, that will be very positive for them. So, I, you know, since I've been given the, the value cap, um, I, 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 I think the right way to say it though, right, is like, it's not value at all. Um, we don't think about it that way. We think about it from a cyclical standpoint. Do we think that where the stock is priced is too cheap given what we think the earnings trajectory is going to be. Because that is the, at least for me, the big thing is the earnings trajectory. I don't want to buy something at five times earnings. And because it's five times earnings, I want to buy the five times earnings because I think, you know, in three years, it's actually two times earnings because the earnings are going up a bunch. And I think that's the way we've thought about this cyclical value area. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's really important, and, and I appreciate kind of the summary. Which is, and you know, I, I think that's right. Like when you think about it, it's like I, it's cyclical with a kicker, cyclical with a story, right? Cheap with a story that, to your point, 
you can get this kind of rebound, um, whether it's in earnings or margins or whatever. And, and, and you're right. If you can slap a TAM story on top of that, like, you know, automation in Europe, right? Like that has worked, right? Because again, the TAM story kind of gives you the growth tale that, you know, that, that maybe is mispriced. So kind of where I wanted to kind of land with all this guy. So if I kind of start from the beginning and land to where we just finished with Scott, which is Pete and Laura said the nominals are bad. The Fed doesn't have credibility or has little credibility in terms of generating inflation. Notice I said in terms of generating inflation, um, which has led to this huge growth over value dynamic and this incredible extension and duration in everything. So again, like I said, I want to make this point really clear to the listeners is my guess is you're longer duration than you think you are, right? Because there's been no way to escape it given kind of the survivorship bias of of performance because it's been so pronounced. And and again, you know, and to Scott's point, you've been able to kind of, you know, dress up around it a bit with you know, cyclicals that are depressed largely because of COVID or trends that look like they could normalize or rebound, um, but they may not be particularly in value sectors. Again, I didn't hear him saying much, you know, in the order of things like, you know, financials or, you know, just straight energy, like it needs, it, it needs a story. So kind of where I wanted to go now is, and Laura, you, I'm going to pick on something you said, um, and I want to start with you, which is this notion then that, like the left tail risk or maybe right tail risk, depending on how you want to define it, is that like you get inflation, right? Like that there's some way to get to success in driving inflation expectations higher. Because if you get it, right, the way most people have positioning, whether they're over explicitly over positioned, not explicitly over positioned, the way you really rip apart a portfolio from here, from again, from rates all the way through to equities, like what would get people to pile into just cheap stocks would be inflation, right? So when you think about what populates the lowest decile, it's going to be things like commodities, um, energy specifically, materials are going to be cyclical consumer durables. So what I would say to you, Laura, Laura is, okay, if the, if the risk is we get inflation, and I'm going to make you opine or speculate, I'm going to make Pete do the same thing, how do you get it, right? Like, what would be the condition set that would have to come together to change the dynamic of all of a sudden of like, oh, they're credible? Like, what gets you there? Well, and, and I think this is where we really need to distinguish between getting inflation and getting a Fed reaction by raising interest rates. I, I think it's very easy to craft a scenario where the yield curve steepens to an unexpected degree uh, and catches the market completely wrong-footed to your point about this just this this you know multi-decade trend of one-way positioning on duration. So you know, let's just for the sake of opinion, assume that we are going to get a change in administration. We're going to get massive fiscal stimulus sidebar. You know, I think we were all shocked by the TARP stimulus package, which was less than $1 trillion. (laughs) A decade later, we get, you know, over $2 trillion passed in the blink of an eye. That's 
10% of GDP. Gonna let that sink in for a second. And, you know, here we are looking at 2021. Should we get something in that magnitude again, which is kind of what's been bandied about already, another $2 trillion. So you craft a scenario where you get the big spending, you're going to get the, you know, deficits as well. Uh, we haven't had a supply demand mismatch with the extraordinary treasury issuance we're going to need. So, you know, you, but you could, you know, argue there, okay, you could get some, you know, drift up in rates. And then you think about, you know, just basic, you know, you think about where goods price deflations come from overseas, emerging markets production. If we get that sort of, um, you know, maybe it's not American first, maybe it's more sort of, you know, America leadership trying to get, um, you know, unwind some of that. You could get a supply disruption. You could get um, even just a small recovery in air travel catches, you know, energy producers wrong footed. You could craft scenarios where you get a year of higher than expected inflation. And that causes yield curve steepening. It causes a pretty bad concussion for all of these investors who are just one way on duration. It doesn't have to come from a Fed rate hike or even Fed rate hike expectations. And I think that's where all of a sudden markets would have to kind of, you know, wake up and listen to yield curve signals again. And so it's, it's different than a sort of a long running inflationary cycle, but it's enough to really shake things up given positioning. No, that's <laughs> no, I think that's, yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think you, you hit on a key point. It's like, you don't have to get into this multi-year big inflationary up cycle mindset to say, like, if you get enough of a change on the margin, the positioning is extreme enough that like just right sizing some to, you know, some of that, is going to be is going to be enough to like really rattle portfolios and we've had a couple of episodes of that over the last few years where it tries and then it ultimately fails which again has continued to compound the behavior of doubling down on the thing that's working and then yeah and then pete to you like here's like my other like million dollar question which is like nobody else has been credible either right the boj and, and they weren't credible like the Europeans, like, I think there was some hope that, you know, over this year we were going to act in a quote fiscal union and, you know, we were going to start, you know, issuing, you know, issuing cohesively, you know, credit and that we might get, you know, the Germans to move a bit and all of a sudden get some fiscal. It, boy, it doesn't feel that good sitting here in October. And again, the, the European market seems to have absorbed that. But talk to me a little bit about like everybody else too, because Laura's point's critical. Like you need global reflation, right? You need the market to think it's global because if it just thinks it's only coming out of the U.S., like it'll be quick, right? Like she's right. It'll be a trade. It'll be even shorter trade that I think she's even alluding to. Like the question is, can you get like everybody, like, what was the old um, what was the old yell in synchronized global growth or Bernanke global synchronized growth? Like, can you get global synchronized growth again? Because that's one more thing to add 
to this whole mix of what we've been talking about is the U.S. is the long-duration trade, right? The dollar makes the U.S. the long-duration trade. So if you look at what's worked at the same time, long rates, growth stocks have worked. has been the U.S. over everything else. So the other kind of fly in the ointment of portfolio construction is nobody's needed to be international for the last decade because they've been a mess and it's been even more deflationary over there. So I then throw to you, like, what's it going to take to be credible globally? Yeah, so, um, you know, Europe in particular, Europe's felt, at least from an investing standpoint, um, a lot like Japan recently. But um, it's it's been interesting. Like, folks forget, like, you know, we, we, we had this potentially what they call like a Hamilton moment uh, where uh, the Europeans were going to finance a uh, country's balance sheet, which you know, previously it was an anathema. Um, and then on top of that, Germany uh, has decided to move off the black zero. So they're going to move to a deficit. Um, and I think the ECB largely in terms of maintaining spread, um, they've done a pretty good job in keeping the credit markets in check and keeping the European government bond markets in check. And I think we had, you know, a three-year Italian bond auction clear at zero percent which if i told you that five years ago you would have you you would have dropped to the floor um john corzine's not very happy about that sorry yeah sorry that was wildly inappropriate that was a shot across the sorry that was not not right yeah so i i think you know kind of specifically for the europeans they've done a lot but what we've seen in true you know in true form is there is a a continued narrative from the northern uh sect versus the southern that the folks that have the money don't necessarily want to lend it, and the folks that need the money don't have it. Um, so I think that you know that dynamic's got to change. And what we've known from the Europeans is they've largely been behind the curve, you know, just historically. So it feels like in Europe, in particular, things have to get get a lot worse before they get better. And, um, I, yeah, I think it's, you know, until until uh, either like there's some sort of vaccine where we're we're going to see that cyclical upside or things really get bad where they just open the commode and they just start spending like we are in the U.S. Like it's it's going to be a lot of the same. And then and then to add on that, like, I think the one that's kind of been the most interesting just behaviorally, quite honestly, has been China. Absolutely. Right. Because you've had this like notion for three years you know back to like even a little bit before the trade war but definitely through the trade war the china's got to stimulate china's got to stimulate they got to hit a big package they need a a 12 13 package again or an 0908 package and they never did that right they were very for the chinese relative to what people saw coming out of the financial crisis were super frugal actually and disciplined and very disciplined right, right? and again part of that is they blew a hole through their own balance sheet the last time <laughs> yeah. and right the market called into question their own credibility about this linkage between kind of less inflation more you know more social financing versus growth rate right like the the social financing blew up and the growth rate nominally kept falling. So people said, well, like, what are you doing? You're going to create all this massive sort of like zombieism that exists in the the economy. But when you look at coming out of COVID, right. And we've been talking about this, like you look at the cyclical numbers, right. 
again, whether you believe what they said about COVID or not, not the debate to get into, but what I'm looking at is when I look at the, the hard economic numbers, and again, even the soft numbers that we're seeing out of companies to verify, they're clearly rebounding, Right. but they're doing it without blowing a hole through the balance sheet at this point in the cycle. And like the market seems to be starting to at least acknowledge a little bit that like the, the multiple disconnect that kind of grew between, you know, EM, which that's a really toxic way to say, you know, China, but EM led by China has maybe they're starting to actually get their act together a little bit from a monetary discipline, from building out a building out a bond market, being a place to go. I only bring it up because like, again, when we go back to kind of the currency dynamic of all this and like the easy thing to say is back to Laura's point, like you throw another couple trillion on this thing and like, you've got, you know, 25, 27% of GDP that like, we're going to have to deal with over the next decade. And everybody goes, Oh great. Dollar week, go buy everything that benefits from dollar week. The problem with that is like, where do you go? Cause you just said the Europeans don't, you know, particularly have their act together. It doesn't look like a hot spot for capital to be rolling into. Nor are the markets deep enough necessarily. To, to even handle right. it. Right. And then Japan, no China, again, again, I would argue markets not deep enough, not but yet. not yet, right. but like, I think that's like the other thing that I, you know, I always have to even caution myself in thinking about this dynamic of what if you get the kind of Laura scenario for, you know, kind of inflation starting here or inflation expectations, maybe yield curve shifting. If you get a little bit of European getting their act together and then China, like where does the capital go? Right. Because it is now really beggar thy neighbor in regards to currency and, in regards to currency and monetization. So, like, which one is the one that's going to absorb the weakness? Yeah, no, that's that's a very fair point. Like, we, we've even talked about China at, at length and, like, even the Chinese government bond market. And it's just, like, we we can't we're, – we're not set up to buy Chinese government bonds right now. It's not an accessible market, an easily accessible market. Um, even on the currency, currency, you have to trade the offshore rate for the most part. So I think China, they've, they've come a long way. In, in terms of in terms of gating capital and being capital destination, uh, and then you have to think about like the Hong Kong component, like what does that all mean? Um, but yeah, I think I think it's it's gonna it's gonna definitely take a, a relaxation uh, for capital to come into China a bit more. But they're certainly well on their way, and you're seeing it how they've been very disciplined with the currency, and you see how they're trying to open the bond market. And then and then Scott, I want to kind of kick it over to you. So. Okay, let me lay the Laura scenario on you. You get a you, you get the curve steepening. You get another couple, you know, another couple T because you get the political dynamics that allow for it, and you get a Fed that says we're not going to stand in the way at least initially. So, like, that's where I want to get to. Uh, like, if you can kind of walk the map of how different that is from what's gone on up to that point, like. You know, the, back to the little bit of like, you don't want to buy cheap for the sake of buying cheap, um, at least in this environment. But like, what do you do? Like, if Laura's kind of right tail or left tail scenario comes to fruition, like, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think obviously if rates are starting to rise, then, you know, you're going to, you're probably going to start a little, thinking a little bit more about financials and a little bit more about, about energy. Um but I, I would I would actually say if, if that tale comes comes to fruition, I mean, 
to the point earlier of like where the margins are and where the growth rates are on some of those, those big compounders, like I'm not sure those are getting totally slaughtered. So I, I think there's going to be there's going to be an element in the portfolio for those, and then I think that there'll be probably a little bit bigger element in the portfolio for, for things that are you know what we would think of as traditionally more cyclical. Um, and it may be the case that, you know, that, that those cyclical names get a little bit wider. So you don't have to be quite as, you know, maybe precise on your on your stories. Maybe more of them will start to work all together. Um, although I do feel like, you know, in, in looking through whether it be industrials or, or retail or uh, materials, there, there's plenty of um, good company-specific stories that if, if the right environment happened for them, they would do very well. So I think those are kind of identified um, and would would be things that we would probably add to. But I, I wouldn't anticipate, like, the whole book being valued. No, I, 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 think that's, I think that's a really – that's really well said. I mean, I think the only way – back to Laura's point that you get to like just close your eyes and complete value is you get a multiple year cycle of inflation running hot. And again, you really reset the nominals and then rates go up enough that you really change this dynamic of the kind of future discount rate. And, and again, the current kind of short free cash flow yield, which again, that doesn't look to be yet what's on the table. Maybe, maybe that's what you get to. And again, you know, I, I wouldn't zero, I won't zero probability it over time. But if we're working in a time frame, I think that we can all get our arms around, like in the next year, which I think is probably the right way to think about it. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I, it, there's, you know, there could be other things that get in the way of big tech, and you know, those have been opined on a lot by the market. Tax rates. It could be. You know, it could be antitrust issues. Those things are all kind of percolating as well, which could help influence the rate of this dynamic. But no, I, no, I think that that's that's an important point to make. And so, and the I, other go ahead. And this will be real quick, but and I think this is this sort of goes to stock selection. But and I think you're gonna you're gonna need to be good at this going forward. It's just you know some of these end markets are in very very different places. Um, you know, think about commercial construction in the U.S. that never really went down. So that's that's at a really high level compared to, you know, what truck orders are in the U.S. So I think the ability to sort of, you know, I guess square up valuation with where the end markets are are going to be really important. I mean, I think even like, like if you even look at autos or housing, like, you know, it, in six to nine months from now, you're probably not going to be able to say those are like really depressed end markets. Probably couldn't even say that about housing now. So I think the ability to identify, you know, markets that are, you know, let's call it 20 or 30% below normal value is going to be important because things are moving really fast. Um, and some, and there, there's big differences between, I'd say, where, like I said, some of these companies and markets are, which is closer to peak, and where some of them are, which are closer to trough. And that's going to make a big difference on, you know, how many years you can, you know, kind of grow earnings, let's call it at a, a similar rate to the fangs. And I think that's yep. what the markets, you know, if that's your comparator, yep. then you know, you want something that can compete with it. And I think that, that that's going to be a very important 
thing to discern um, about where some of these companies are. And I think there's enough out there um, providing things, you know, kind of continue to trend upwards, but, you know, just keep our eye on it. No, that's, I think that's really well said. It's your comparator, right? Like that's, yeah, that's absolutely right. So, yeah. Wow. That was, that was a good one. I, 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 that's I, fun. Yeah, no, I mean, like Laura and Pete knock, knocking it out of the park. I mean, like macro roundup, strong. That's what we do. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you guys coming on. That was absolutely great. Look, I, I think, like I said, I think it's critical I think it's critical just given, I think, the point about if you're at a very extreme starting point. There could be some catalyst to shake it up. Um, and so you got to be on guard. I think Scott's point's a good one. Um, you know, not shooting till you see the whites of the eyes is really important because jumping ahead of this trade is has just the, the road is littered with managers that jumped ahead of this ahead of this rotation and have been buried because it did Laura's point. It just never came to fruition. And so there is a little bit of there is a little bit of you know be patient, be on guard, and watch. But but I wanted to try to string together why the macro and the rate outcome of the macro is just so important to your portfolio. And as Brian said, it really is the only thing that matters. Like quantitatively, when you can boil things down to one really big thing, right? You, it, like you you just can't ignore the you can't ignore that. And so again. We've had some issues with that in the past three years as well, and so it's probably one that's a little bit near and dear to my heart, but it really is the really big thing. And so, you know, Pete, Laura, I really appreciate you guys coming on to talk through the dynamics because if there's a change in the really big thing, it's going to be a really big deal because we know where portfolio construction is. We know where positioning is. And again, when you think about the ability to try to generate alpha out of this going forward, like it's the thing you're going to have to get right. Like either it's going to change because of the dynamics you laid out, or we're going to have to keep playing the same game. And that's really going to frustrate people. So I I really appreciate everybody carving out some time. I know we talked for a while, but we haven't been on a podcast in a minute. So it was probably a little cathartic for, you know, everybody to talk and, you know, um, we will be back to doing this, I believe, monthly. I will have to uh, check with the FS marketing department, but I believe this will be monthly. Um, and and again, we'll continue to kind of dive into the topic, and you know, obviously, um, you know, bring in our bring in our kind of vast resources um, to kind of discuss this stuff when it becomes operable. So you know, Pete, Laura, you know, stay close to the phone because I do think this is the really big thing that matters, and like there could be some catalyst for change. So. Everybody really appreciate taking the time on a Friday, and uh, thank you very much. That was a lot of fun. This podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. If you found this helpful, please rate and review the podcast and subscribe to get new episodes as soon as they are available.